Tonight's talk is on skillful effort. I'd like to start with a quote from the Dhammapada. Wakefulness is the way to life. Fools sleep as if they were already dead. The masters are awake and they live forever. They watch. They are clear. How happy they are, for they see that wakefulness is life. How happy they are following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance they meditate, seeking freedom and happiness. So this is what I see we are doing here together. We're learning how to become awake, seeking freedom and happiness. But how do we do that? That's the big question. In this quote, the Buddha says, with great perseverance. So this is directing us to this quality of effort or energy. How do we pay attention to our experience with balanced effort? What does it mean to make effort? How do we apply our energy skillfully? This is often a challenging part of practice. The word, uh, Pali word for effort or energy is virya. And this word is on more lists than any other quality that the Buddha mentions. So it must be very important. It's one of the ten paramis. It's one part of the eightfold path. It's one of the five spiritual powers. Energy is the fuel that keeps our practice going. You can see this. Without energy, meditation gets pretty difficult. The Buddha said it's far better to live a day making effort in meditation than a hundred years without. So you guys are pretty far ahead of the game. You've been here seven days now. But how do we make this effort? I think we get this question in interviews just about more than any other one. I'd like to read a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya about the paradox of effort. So one day a deva was talking to the Buddha. A deva is a a being from the heavenly realms. And the deva says to the Buddha, Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. The Buddha replies, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So often this expression, crossing over the flood, means how did you find liberation? How did you find freedom? So the deva says, but how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? And the Buddha replied, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva said, At long last I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. You've already noticed that the Buddha didn't tell us what he did, (laughs) but he told us what he didn't do. So we'll start by looking at these two extremes that he pointed out that he didn't do, the extremes of pushing forward or staying in place. And these are two extremes that we want to avoid when we look at applying energy and in meditation, and skillful effort may be all the territory that is in between these two. So let's look first at the one extreme of staying in one place. He said, when I uh, stayed in, without staying in one place, when I stayed in one place, I sank. So if we don't make any effort, that's how I see staying in one place, is not making effort. So if we don't make effort, we see that our hearts and our minds just go on in their 
usual uh, diluted, grasping, aversive kind of way. If we do nothing, we see that we get lost and drown in the contents of our minds. So if we do nothing, we notice that uh, we're distracted a lot. We're not even present. We're lost in anxiety or busyness. We're often mired in negative emotions or reactive, continually reactive to the changing circumstances of life. So if you imagine the flood the Buddha mentioned, the flood of crossing over, and then you think of quicksand, the staying in one place is a bit like getting stuck in quicksand. We sink. So the same old way of not um, making effort clearly doesn't lead to freedom. So we do need to make some effort if we're going to tame our minds. So staying in place may manifest on retreat as a lack of energy. It may manifest as um, indulging in pleasant fantasies or um, taking extra naps or having a lack of commitment to your practice. It may manifest as sinking mind, that uh, state of mind that Patricia mentioned, where uh, it's pretty pleasant, but there's no clarity. There's, it's pretty fuzzy, but pleasant. So definitely sometimes in meditation it does make a sense to ease up, but usually this is something that we decide with our teacher. It's often just plain laziness. Meditation takes uh, energy and effort and dedication and patience. There's no other way around it. And anyone who tells you otherwise, I would say either hasn't done it or is um, deceiving you. It's said in the early days here at IMS that one time they got a letter um, addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And I found myself... um, Worrying for the, for the poor soul who uh, showed up and you know, was hoping that it was instant because for most people it's not. For most people it's more like a slow stew that needs to cook for a while. So we clearly need to do something about this human predicament. We need to train our minds. Then we sit down and meditate and we often go to the other extreme of pushing forward. So pushing forward may manifest as trying too hard, um, using our will too forcefully, trying to make something happen in our practice. And what we find when we do this is that we often exacerbate the turmoil in our minds. As the Buddha said, he was whirled about. So one example would be to try to force concentration to try to use your will to make your attention stay on the breath. And uh, it doesn't work. The way we develop concentration is by gently letting go of the stories of our minds when we notice that we're lost and returning it to the breath or our primary anchor over and over and over again. That's how we develop concentration, not with some kind of forceful will of trying to make the mind obey you. And if we try to do that, we often find that we get tight. I remember when I finally got this in my first three-month course here um, at IMS, and uh, I went into an interview with Sharon, and I was kind of complaining about my mind and and how uh, distracted it was and kind of probably added in the line about what a bad yogi I was, et cetera, et cetera. And Sharon just turns to me and she said, you know you can't control whether your mind goes off into thought. The only thing you can do the moment that you have a choice is that moment that you notice that you've been thinking, that moment that you wake up, and then you can choose whether to indulge in the thought or whether to come back to your breath. That's where the work is. That's what you can um, do. And I was so relieved. I was like, oh, I can do that. I'd been trying to control my mind, and I, w- and I was finding out that it wasn't working, and I was very upset. But I thought, I can do that. When I notice that I'm thinking, I can 
choose to come back to the breath, aim again for the breath. So we can have this intention to let go of our um, stories and this intention to um, be mindful of the breath, but we can't force it. So forcing it is that way of pushing forward, of using our will too strongly. It's interesting because this quality of will is one that I think is fairly well developed in uh, this culture. It's a, it's a quality of mind that's encouraged, you know, that we can control things, you know, that we can use our will to control things, that we can control life. And what then happens when we hit the pillow? I mean, can you make concentration and awareness happen? You know, one of meditation's numerous paradoxes the harder we strive to make it happen, actually, the more we take ourselves away from connection. We can create the conditions and create the intention to be mindful and to be focused, and then we just plug away at it. Another way that we may find ourselves pushing forward is having expectations about our practice, about what should be happening. My practice should be going differently than it is. How often do we find ourselves thinking that? There's something wrong with my practice. It's not going the way it should be going. I should be more concentrated. I should be more focused. It should be more clear. I shouldn't be tired. All of these expectations uh, um, are a way of pushing forward that, that really get in the way of our just being with our meditation as it is. Now, making that, um, that constant um, application of our energy and then accepting it as it unfolds. Another way we might push forward in meditation is to have um, agendas about healing. You know, sometimes we feel that um, if we... Uh, really dig down into our emotions that somehow we'll heal ourselves from our suffering. And one way I, 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 I visually see that is like if there were a, a little flower bud and then we decide that the way to open the flower is to pull the petals open. You know, it's, it doesn't work well for the flower so we so having these agendas that you know we're going to dig into our emotions and face them once and for all, you know really, um, uh, you know go into the depths of our fear that that's going to um, heal us somehow generally just makes us more agitated. And if you think about the goal of meditation, the goal of freedom and liberation, it seems that trying to manipulate in our minds in this way. That doesn't lead to peace. My own experience is that we heal um, our emotional wounds through acceptance and love and through being with them in a balanced way. There's a quote by Suzuki Roshi that I like a lot. I found recently he says, Suzuki Roshi was um, a a well-known Zen Master who wrote uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he says, you are all perfect just as you are, and you could use a little work. And to me, that's a nice, really balanced and realistic way of looking at it. You know, we really are okay just as we are. You know, we don't need to be fixed. And yet, we do, most of us could use a little work. We can remember that quote when we feel like we have to push forward, somehow make something happen. It can actually be counterproductive to strive in this way. There's a story by um, a Zen master who was asked by a student how long it would take him to get enlightened. And the master said, about 15 years. And the student said, what? 15 years? And the teacher said, well... It might take 25 years in your case. And the student said, it would take 25 years in my case? On second thought, it would probably take 50 years. This illustrates a fundamental point. 
Pains and pressures often come up because of an over-eagerness in practice, not an over-eagerness for the dharma, but an over-eagerness to get something out of meditation and get it quickly, to get it and run, so to say. So we balance this sense of of striving by learning to relax into our practice and to be with it as it unfolds. Thich Nhat Hanh um, calls this um, aimlessness. I'm a little worried to use this word because I don't want you all wandering aimlessly around um, I'm a mess, but I'll give you a little explanation of what he meant by that. Um, the word is um, apranahita, aimlessness. And it's from a book of his um, called The Three Doors to Liberation. There is nothing to do, nothing to realize, no program, no agenda. Does the rose have to do something? No, the purpose of the rose is to be a rose. Your purpose is to be yourself. You don't have to run anywhere to become someone else. You are wonderful just as you are. Life is precious as it is. All the elements for your happiness are already here. There is no need to run, strive, search, or struggle. Just be. Just being in the moment in this place is the deepest practice of meditation. Ultimately, energy and effort is a balancing act. The way we work with our effort and energy is we notice when it's off, and then we adjust. And then it goes off again, and we adjust again. And at first, teachers help us understand this, help us understand when we're off balance, either um, too loose, staying in one place, or uh, striving, pushing too hard. But then we learn how to do it for ourselves. It's part of um, practicing, is learning how to do that for ourselves. The Buddha gave the analogy of a musical instrument, that you want the strings on a musical instrument to be tune just right. And if the strings are too loose, the sound doesn't come out. And if the string is too tight, it breaks. And so finding that right tautness to the string so that there's a good sound. That's what we do with our practice, trying to find the right the right um, tautness to our practice so that it's not too loose and not too tight. But as I said, it's a balancing act. We, we, we continually make adjustments. As Joseph said um, a few days ago, until we get fully enlightened, the practice is all about right effort. It's an ongoing part of practice. Uh, two manifestations of an imbalance in energy can be restlessness and sleepiness, two of the hindrances that Patricia mentioned last night. So restlessness can be that we have too much energy. You know, and then there's a feeling in the mind of, you know, of lots of thought, uh, raciness, anxiety, turmoil, can't get back to the breath. Or there's a physical manifestation of the body feels jumpy, wants to move, in its worst um, possible manifestation, you feel like you're going to die if you don't get out of the hall or if they don't ring the bell. Some of you have experienced that, obviously. <laughs> I remember sometimes I'd be sitting in here and my mind would be going, ring the bell. <laughs> ring the bell. <laughs> so uh, with restlessness... Um, there are, there are some things that we can do to help uh, with this energy. Sometimes it's helpful to, if you feel like you're struggling to stay with the breath and it's kind of this, you know, you're getting tighter and tighter, you can use a, um, a larger uh, uh, object such as hearing. 
you can open the mind to hearing. And that has that kind of spacious, large pasture feeling, and sometimes the mind will accept that a little better as an object. Or you can use the feeling of your whole body sitting as your anchor. You can also just get interested in restlessness. You know, what is it? How does it feel in the mind? How does it feel in the body? You know, any experience that we're having can be our object of awareness. So restlessness feels like this. Then the other uh, opposite extreme of sleepiness, when there isn't enough energy. You know, the, the mind feels foggy, the body feels heavy. Sometimes with sleepiness, it helps actually to give the mind a little bit more to do. Um, my first three-month course here in 84, they, they, they said over and over again, effort creates energy. And uh, there is a certain truth to this, that when we give the mind more to do when it's sleepy, sometimes that can help uh, increase the energy. So uh, perhaps seeing if we can be more clear about what the sensations are from the beginning of the in-breath and the middle and the end, the beginning of the out-breath, the middle, the end. Or adding touch points if there's uh, a pause at the end of the breath between before the next in-breath. Um, Sometimes you can even uh, make the mind uh, work a little harder. One breath, uh, you, you're with the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath, and the next breath you do a series of touch points, perhaps the left shoulder, right hip, and left knee. In, out, right shoulder, left hip, right knee. That will wake you up. There's also concrete things you can do. Um, for both sleepiness and, uh, and restlessness, walking meditation is a great balancer. With uh, sleepiness, you might want to walk outside. Sometimes the fresh air really helps. Or you might want to drink some tea, some caffeinated beverage. Or wash your face with cold water before you come in the hall. Or they say um, that pulling on your earlobes can increase energy. Opening your eyes during your sitting will bring in more energy. Or doing standing meditation if you find that you're very sleepy. Sometimes we may have low energy because we're ill. We're not feeling well. Some people get discouraged at this time, think, well, oh, I can't practice. But we can still practice. There's different aspects of mindfulness. And one of the aspects is clarity and precision about what's happening. Another aspect of mindfulness is acceptance. And for me, I often find that when I'm you know, not feeling well, when uh, my health isn't so well, that the clarity and precision part can be a little bit harder. But the acceptance part can be great practice. You know, developing that quality of equanimity of can I be with this body? And mind, you know, even when there's low energy and sickness. That's part of life. Can I be with this part of life? It's good practice. Another quality that I find is essential for this middle path of crossing over the flood uh, is the, and it was mentioned by Joseph the other night, the quality of interest and curiosity. It's a great balancer for our energy to be interested and curious about what is happening. If the energy is low, that helps raise it. And if the energy is um, too much leaning forward with expectation, that helps balance it too by just coming back to what is happening in this moment. And combining this interest with a sense of non-resistance, of being open to whatever appears. One, another one of my favorite quotes is, again, the Zen master Dogen. He says, what is the awakened mind? The mind that is intimate with all things. 
And I love the inclusivity of that. It means that our meditation isn't about getting rid of anything. It's about getting to know it all, to be intimate with all of it, connecting with all of our experience. So we want to see what our experience is clearly so that we can understand it. What is a thought? You know, we're not interested in the content. We're not interested in the story, but we're interested in what is a thought. You know, what gives a thought power? What happens when thought is met with awareness? Or what is an emotion? We'll talk about that some tomorrow. Not, again, the story of the emotion, but what is an emotion? How do we experience in the body and the mind? How do we become trapped? How do we become free? This is the interest that we're talking about. And this is different a different feeling than trying to change our minds or trying to eradicate parts of ourselves or trying to even make our minds be quiet. All of those are about controlling the mind. This interest is about understanding and allowing and seeing and learning. We tend to think of peace as a lack of activity in the mind or getting rid of things from our mind. And there's a quote by Tony Packer that kind of challenges this assumption. She says, Quietness is letting everything appear in awareness as it is whether it be fantasy, planning for the future, worrying about the past, whether it is pain or pleasure, or an unexpected clearing of the mind. Getting quieter and quieter means less and less resistance to what is here. Have we thought about quietness in this way? As less resistance to what arises in the mind. But this non-resistance doesn't mean passivity. That's where we can get confused. It doesn't mean that, that we just uh, um, let our minds go wild. <laughs> we do have work to do. There is a place for skillful means, and those are all the techniques that we are teaching here for working with what comes up. Skillful means is learning uh, what works, learning what leads to happiness. Another good way of translating this word virya is um, diligence. I think this can often be a more useful way to look at it. A big part of meditation is just showing up on the cushion and having that attention, intention to be present. Perseverance, diligence, steady, sustained application of our energy. My partner and I like to go hiking sometimes, and we have two very different ways of hiking. He's one of these people who uh, um, likes to go really hard and fast, and um, then he wears himself out, and he stops and takes a break. My style is I like to just steady one foot you know, in front of the other, kind of plod along. I'm not as fast as him. But I also don't like to stop because it breaks my momentum. So I just keep going steady. Now, for hiking, probably both of those ways work uh, fine. But we find that for meditation, uh, the way that I hike works better. (laughs) That kind of steady, just keep going, you know, constant application of energy, not uh, stopping not, you know, like pushing ourselves really hard and then feeling like, oh, I have to go take a two-hour nap. It's, um, this, help, this makes us actually lose our momentum. A better way is this kind of steadiness over time. The um, famous Upandita that we talk about sometimes uh, calls the, the kind of, the, the, you know, working hard and then stopping resting, he calls that stop-and-go practice, and he says it's a little bit like a chameleon. That chameleons will take a few steps, and they'll look around, and then they'll take a few more steps, and they'll look around again, and they take forever to get anywhere. 
We're looking for steadiness. There's a couple of stories from the sutras that um, I like a lot about uh, this kind of steady energy, steady application of energy. Uh, one is the story of Ananda. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for um, all the years that he taught. And it's said that Ananda was present for all of the discourses that the Buddha gave and that he had a miraculous memory that could remember all of the discourses. And so after the Buddha died, they called uh, together a convention, a, a meeting of, of the 500 uh, senior monks to come together and um, bring the teachings together and make plans for preserving them. And uh, there was a certain qualification, though, to get into this council. You had to be fully enlightened. And, of the, um, and, and it was also really important that Ananda was at this this council because he'd been there for all the discourses and knew them all, but there was a problem that was that Ananda wasn't fully enlightened. And so one of the monks, I think it might even been Sariputta, but I'm not sure, one of the monks went to say to um, Ananda a few days before this council, you know, we need you to get fully enlightened so that you can come to this <laughs> council because we really need you. And so it said that, you know, Ananda was, you know, practicing hard and, you know, kept at it, kept at it. And it's the night before the council, and he's still not fully enlightened. And he's doing walking meditation late into the night. And then um, he finally mindfully uh, lays uh, down to rest and becomes fully enlightened. There's another story that I like a lot. There's a, um, one part of the sutras includes... Uh, poems by um, a lot of the nuns, a lot of the nuns from the time of the Buddha. And most of these stories um, are about women who went through incredible suffering before they became uh, nuns. One of my favorite stories is Patachara, and it's said that in the period of 24 hours, uh, Patachara lost her husband, who was bitten by a poisonous snake, and she lost her two children who were drowned in a flooded river, and then she lost her parents and siblings who died in a house fire. And that this all happened within 24 hours. And that she lost her mind. And that she uh, went around crazy for a while until she met the Buddha. And then she recovered her mind and she ordained and practiced. And from the sound of her enlightenment poem, which I'm going to read to you, it sounds like she practiced for a while, that she didn't have instant meditation. And, and this book, then, is a collection of the enlightenment poems of these nuns. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? You get the sense there that she's been meditating for a while, working for a while. Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. that steady application of energy over a period of time. And you notice, too, that she was in her room by herself and she was still mindful. You know that, it was just <laughs> you know that feeling you get sometimes when you go in your room like, now you can take a break? <laughs> Look what you might be missing. So sometimes we need what's called um, courageous effort, persevering through difficulty, through difficult times. I remember my first retreat that I suffered a lot from sleepiness. Every sitting I would get sleepy at some point. And after 6 p.m. I was um, 
practically useless. I would some a couple times I remember almost falling asleep during walking meditation. Um, but I knew I didn't need more sleep, that that wasn't the problem. The problem was I'm just not an evening person, I'm a morning person, and that um, my energy was lower in the evening, and it was my practice, it was really hard to balance at that time. So I, I would keep going, you know, every evening, even though I was incredibly sleepy and just wanted to go to bed, I kept going until 11 p.m. I knew that it, um, I didn't want to get up before 4 and I know I didn't need more than five hours of sleep, so I made myself stay up to 11 even if I was tired. That, to me, was courageous effort to just keep going. And so we can all look for ourselves at our application of energy, you know? How are we uh, working with effort? It's not to push too hard and to force yourself to do things that you can't do, but it's also not to shortchange yourself by expecting too little. One way at this uh, point of the retreat that we can work with uh, increasing our effort a little bit is by working with continuity, like Patachara did, um, that mindfulness at other times besides for just our sitting and walking periods. So we can... Uh, begin to experiment, now that you all have been here a week and are fairly settled in, we can begin to experiment with bringing our mindfulness to all aspects of our day. So when we get up after a sitting period and go to our walking uh, place, can we practice mindfulness on our way there? Can we practice mindfulness when we brush our teeth uh, before we go to bed? How about eating meditation? Can we practice mindfulness while we uh, are eating our meals? It's actually really uh, quite a lot of fun and quite interesting to do this. I remember being so surprised that rice, which we tend to think of as a rather bland flavor, actually, when you pay attention to it, one mouthful of rice has very many variances of flavor as you chew it and swallow it. So we're working with bringing mindfulness to eating. This is a time where we might want to space out. Now, if when I talk about this, if you find yourself um, freaking out and kind of tensing up, you know, you can work up to it. I remember Joseph mentioning this to me my first retreat, you know, suggesting that I would be mindful all day. And I remember exactly what I said to him. I said, Joseph, you have got to be kidding <laughs> I just, I was like, oh my God, no way. <laughs> you know, so he said, well, start out with, you know, like periods of time. We can choose different periods of time that will really work with the continuity of mindfulness, and then we can add on to it. So, you know, if, if every meal seems like too much, start with one meal. Or if you think you can't do a whole meal, do the first 20 bites of your food. You know, find ways to kind of... Um, Work with it, again, not pushing too hard and not shortchanging yourself. It's that middle place. Another interesting thought about effort is, um, and this also I got from Joseph. (laughs) Sorry, Joseph, I keep quoting you from (laughs) this first retreat. I learned so much. Um, Joseph said it's easier to make 100% effort than 90%. And I found this really to actually be quite true. You know, 100% effort means that, um, for example, we have a commitment. Like I mentioned the first evening, we have a commitment when we're lost in a thought to just let go of whatever story it is and come back to the breath. So if we have 100% commitment, we just don't negotiate. It's not... If we have 90% commitment, we might think, well, maybe I could follow this thought. This thought might be okay to just spend a little time thinking about. And so if you have 90% commitment, you're wasting a lot of energy deciding which thoughts you're going to let yourself think about. You know, it's easier. Just keep it simple. Just come back to the breath. Or naps. I mean, similar with naps. If, If you think, well, you know, I'm tired. I can take a nap. 
Well, then it's like every time you're a little tired, you have to think about whether you're going to take a nap or not. That takes a lot of um, energy. Takes it's, a, it's an energy drain if you just have a commitment that you're not going to take naps. Or if you need your 10-minute nap after lunch, you're just going to take your 10-minute nap after lunch. It's a lot easier. Very simple. It frees so much energy. Another thing we suggest around energy is watching out for what we call energy drains. And these are um, uh, mind states or, or habits that we get into that, that leak out our energy. A few days ago, one person asked in the question and answers about momentum. You know, this retreat, this long retreat, uh, we build a certain momentum of concentration, momentum of mindfulness, and momentum of energy. And we have ways that we can kind of leak it out. And it's good to be uh, mindful of what these are. So for some people, it might be that favorite fantasy that they go to when, when um, they're bored. Or uh, for me, it was always um, uh, time thoughts. That first retreat, I remember I always knew exactly which day we were on and how many we had to go. And um, when I would get discouraged, I would start thinking about that, you know, oh, we're only on day seven. I don't know if I'm going to make it, you know. And um, it would really wear me down. Or um, we're on day, uh, you know, 70. Oh, my God, it's almost over. No, but looking out, I would look out. I learned over time to just call those time thoughts, catch them quick, and um, not go down that road. Too much suffering. Or for some people, an energy drain might be doubt that... Uh, Patricia mentioned last night that this kind of doubting our abilities. Again, catching it quick, noticing what it is. Oh, it's doubt. can help spare us uh, leaking out a lot of energy. Or for some people, it might be contact with the outside world. You know, the mail or the phone call or whatever. That definitely takes away our energy. So it's good to uh, notice for yourself if you have any particular energy drains and see if you can uh, work with them more skillfully. Another suggestion that the Buddha gave uh, when our energy might be low is that we can reflect on people who uh, manifest that quality of great effort. And there's a story I found of a Tibetan yogi that I really uh, love because it is this manifestation of um, commitment and diligence. One of my teachers at Tashi Jung was Amtrim Todin. He is a great yogin who lived previously at Kampagar in eastern Tibet. Kampagar is a very steep place in between cliffs. His guru, Kamtru Rinpoche, put him in a high mountainous place for nine years. His practice developed well and everything was quite easy. The place had beautiful views and a lot of space and nothing changed much. He went to see Kamtrul Rinpoche and said that now he needed a horrible place to meditate because everything in his previous place was too good. So Kamtrul Rinpoche sent him to a small cave, and it was very cold, um, to a small cave in a cleft between mountains. The sun never came into the cave, and it was very cold and damp. It was near a big waterfall and about 14,000 feet up, a place with a lot of bad smells and very damp. The wind roared down the cleft and made it impossible to light a fire. His, his cave was full of bird doo-doo. <laughs> it doesn't say doo-doo here, but I'm not going to say the word it says. <laughs> he stayed there for five years, and his practice really improved. Now any difficulty doesn't worry him. Whatever occurs is nothing to him. This is an excellent example for us to follow. All right, we're not going to make you go to a cold cave with bird doo-doo. But what I loved about that story is 
his commitment is obviously to freedom and not comfort. You know, and that perseverance of um, doing whatever needs to be done in order to find freedom. I find it to be a very inspiring story. So we're developing here with our effort. We're developing the ability to show up for more and more of our lives. Now, meditation practice and retreat is this cultivation, this practice of showing up, of committing ourselves to a period of time to being here for whatever unfolds and for holding all of our experience with care, both the joys and the sorrows, the pleasure and the pain. So this curious non-resistance that I recommended means that we sit with a certain sense of nakedness. We don't do this easily because we're often very attached to control, to knowing, to security. But can we really let go into the simplicity of not knowing, you know, not knowing what the next breath is, being fresh and curious for it, not knowing what fear is, being interested in it, being with it all with curiosity. It takes a very radical surrender. So as we open to radical trust in this process, we see that meditation isn't about changing ourselves. It's about deeply understanding ourselves and letting transformation happen. And we finally understand that there's nowhere to get to. I mean, is there any other time then now, you know, now is what's important. How are we finding freedom now? It's the only time that we have. Being willing to, to not know and to look. After several years of practice, a student came to Katagiri Roshi saying, I used to think I knew what you were saying in your lectures, but lately I just don't understand at all. A grin spread over his teacher's features. Finally, Katagiri said, you're getting somewhere. (laughs) Getting to that sense of not no mind, of being willing to look with freshness over and over. So we come back a full circle, back to that first uh, sutra that I read. So we have to do something. We're not going to stay in one place. But it's not about pushing forward through control or will. And again, it's not about staying in one place and sinking. So what's in between? And that's our journey of discovery. I want to end tonight with a story about sustained effort. In the 60s and 70s, the Zen monk De Chung lived in rural Tennessee, where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with a nearby university. When De Chung first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors happened by and said, you'd better cut that thing down or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said De Chun. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. He promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him working day after day, showed up with chainsaws offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, said Daechun. I do it my way. This went on for months with such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of Daechun on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. It became a phenomenon, a cause for conversation, and before too long, this strange old Chinese fellow had become a member of the neighborhood. On the day the tree finally fell, with a crash that shook all of the houses on his street, 
one of Dae Chung's friends asked him, So what will you do now? Make firewood, answered Dae Chung. <laughs> he later said that this was the way he taught his students meditation. He'd just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. Let's sit for a couple minutes. Just chop, you just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. Have fun chopping. This talk was given by Rebecca Bradshaw at Insight Meditation Society on June 14, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.